0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here today on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwar. Michael, how have you been this week? Doing well, Gary, thank you, and how are you? I'm good. I feel I put a weird intonation on part of that sentence, but it's too late to go back now, so we'll just move forward. Michael, I have good news this week. If you recall, one of the weeks we were away, there was a great hope that no news would develop, and there was a coup in Russia. And I've got to say, Michael... We may have missed him on the way up, but we certainly caught him on the way down. Because the man who led that coup hit the ground, along with the rest of
1: his plane. Coup is rather a big word for what it was. In fact, at the end of it all, we weren't really terribly sure what in fact it had been. But I I think most people in the end decided it wasn't really a coup, but more um, a move in a series of business negotiations involving the various people involved in the business that we call russia inc but yes um i was listening to the diplomatic con uh, correspondent from the times talking about this and he said he wouldn't be taking out too many insurance policies on the life of mr brogan at that stage that he didn't expect him to stay in the land of the living for too much longer he said it turns out i i was rather precipitate. it took rather longer than i thought it would but there you go in a tragic and unexpected accident uh the how could going to say leader, leader, CEO, manager, whatever, of uh, the Wagner Group, which is, as we know, very important to the Russian economy and particularly to its global diplomatic outreach. It's involved in 17 different African countries. Uh, uh, has died in a. It's not yet clear, Gary. Is it? Well, lots of things are not clear, and probably never will be until we get into the whatever the modern day version of the KGB files are. Uh, what indeed happened. But for example, we don't n- really know yet how the plane fell from the sky, do it. I mean, it's we don't know, for example, if it was a bomb on the plane, or if it was taken down by some form of uh, missile attack.
0: The original reports were that it had been shot down by a missile defense battery. Um, which would obviously be state-controlled infrastructure in Russia. Subsequently, that's there seems to be a bit of doubt about this, whether or not the plane exploded due to a bomb. I have heard some people suggest that it would be very silly for a man who attempted a coup, even a low-fat or zero-carb coup, as he may have attempted, uh, to get onto a plane in Russian airspace, and therefore he may have been dead before he got on the plane, other people are saying well maybe there's a small chance he's not actually dead because this is Russia and very strange things happen there and he simply may not have been on the plane I think at last glance they had not found his body which is hardly surprising consider the you know plane crash uh, but it appears that the now fictitious head of the Wagner group and former caterer to the stars is dead you've got to admire a man who was able to turn a catering company into into effectively becoming a warlord. Like, that is, that's a career jump.
1: Yeah, I I heard uh, a Russian commentator discussing that precise evolution, and he said that it was, basically, he was a man who had had come out of prison at this age. He had spent quite some time in prison, if I remember, and came out, and he started doing catering, as you say, to the stars. So he, he would be part of, event organizing. And, he, and as he got more and more involved in the event organizing, he realized that there was also increasingly a need in Russia today for people with money to have security. So he started doing catering and security. And over, the, over time, he realized he was making a awful lot more money out of the security. And then he thought, you know what, we could do this in a bigger bigger scale. Because lots of people hanging around in Russia, not much money, but had some fairly substantial military experience and training and were willing to uh, maybe do things that other people weren't willing to do. And, and so so was born a Wagner. So basically starts off as a, as a guy with a chipper uh, and a couple of bouncers, if you like, and ends up with this private army. Now, the first thing, you know, the theme of how it fell from the sky, the initial reports was that he had been accepted by a missile, and that would seem to suggest it. in an absolute sense there's no way this could happen without the uh, uh, the assent and the permission, or indeed the will of the very, very top of the state, whether if it was a bomb state. But yeah, there's, isn't there something absolutely, I mean, everything about this is both banal and extraordinary. It's extraordinary also that we, we are so kind of, oh, well, there you go. Uh, that's not a surprise that this is our reaction to this. But when you actually take it out of itself and start to look at it, it is remarkable. The idea that you'd shoot a plane out of the sky in your own country, in your own skies, and let it fall to the earth, what to, to be so blasé about that. I have actually seen some analysis suggesting
0: that while I think the immediate reaction of everyone was that Putin had done this, there is an argument being made now that it may not, assuming it was what it appears to be, may not have actually been ordered by Putin because there was still some use to Prigozhin uh, that had not been wrung out of him and that Putin, if he was going to do this, would have waited. And uh, We will see. Did you see the comments uh, Putin made about him? He was a man with a difficult fate and he had made serious mistakes. Which again, is not the quote of a person you hear and say, definitely didn't have that person killed.
1: You, you, you know, there, there, there were some theories that maybe he was dead before he got on. Apparently, uh, there were, in fact, two different uh, Wagner planes that took off going from St. Petersburg to to Moscow and that uh, maybe he was dead before God or or in fact maybe he didn't get on the plane at all not crazy people but serious people I've heard say that while they're 95% convinced that yeah, he is dead that they wouldn't discount a 5% possibility that in fact that this is some kind of weird operation, and the progression is in fact not dead, but is as we speak maybe going off to somewhere in in the far east of Russia, or possibly heading for some nice little island in the Caribbean, with, with simply Brazil. Maybe get some proper, you know, kind of face off surgery, kind of Nicholas Cage kind of thing. Well, Gary, is there not something that we're reflecting on the fact that we are now? Quite blase about the idea that the state, the nation of Russia, is run by people for whom political murder is just one of those basic, ordinary tools that you use in your day-to-day management of the state. Remember, we, we referenced uh, some time ago the, the the case of a young woman, a young woman banker. I think she was only twenty-eight. She was the vice president of a not very massive bank in in Russia, and she fell out of the window of her uh, apartment, whatever she was, ten floors up, and died. It's obviously it's a horrible, tragic fate for the women, but, but that when you're getting to that level of micromanagement with murder, I think that we you're not really dealing with a regime that is going to is that you can really. Say is going to behave in a way that is normal and predictable, rational, according to the way we understand how states act. And without getting into the rights and the wrongs of the state of how the the state of the war in Ukraine today and how it should evolve, and whether support should be more support should be given, or whether pressure should pressure should be applied, and whether we should be looking for an off ramp, if indeed there is an off ramp, I, I I don't see that how you can be genuinely sanguine about engaging in negotiations with a, with a regime like this and expect that the thing is going to be a normal negotiation where at the end of it you sign a document and everybody says, oh, that's, it's all done and dusted, and then have any kind of faith that these people are going to behave in a consistent legal and rational manner afterwards. I think there's a terrible level of old-fashioned liberal optimism about that worldview. Well, I, I, on your point about
0: a uh, state developing to the point where it's wi- willing to use murder to solve its problems, I'd make the point that outside of the modern state, that has been the approach of not just states, but kingdoms and various leaders for quite a long portion of human history. It was generally accepted that
1: leaders could. That's not my point. My point is not that, that states would use murder. Of course, states have used murder. I am sure they're dem- democratic states. My point is that this is not a, this is a regime for whom murder, state murder, has become an everyday commonplace tool. It's just it's one of the ordinary things on your desk. There are a set of buttons. Okay, we'll we'll get him sent to the gulag. We'll get her sent to the psychiatric prison. We will get him sent to the ordinary prison. Oh, we'll get him thrown out of. Uh, the fourth, the the fourteenth floor of his apartment building. It's that it's so, it's become almost like a a really bad black joke. The level that which and the speed and the the, the normality with which they were, that they are willing to go to this kind of state murder when they have all sorts of other tools available to them if they wanted to. But but it feels like that's that kind of stuff. It's a well we want to know. It, oh, this is easier.
0: There is a um, there is there's a Wikipedia page actually uh, you might like Michael yeah and it's just called suspicious Debts of Russian business people 2022 to 2023. Now I would make the point that at the point you have you don't have one page anymore. You have to start dividing it by year. <laughs> but a lot of them did not fall out of windows. Although you would think it's gotten to the point uh, at you know at this uh, at this time. Where he just wouldn't want windows in your house above a certain level. Yeah, make them work for it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Oh no, it's well, poisoning. We know that they use they, they use they 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 use poisoning them. Do you remember there there was that uh, was it Anna Anna Am I getting that right? She's a very important, very courageous uh, journalist, and in a because this has been going on a long time, the security services poisoned her and there was a number of them they poisoned i'm not sure in her case but certainly a number of them they poisoned with this uh radioactive uh isotope and the thing about it was it was absolutely a statement murder because it was an incredibly expensive way to kill somebody you i don't need you, you remember i mean we're talking more i think it's more than a decade of, well, i don't know if you remember the stories but the numbers that they were, that they were talking about how much it cost to, to generate this stuff and to get it in and to use it. It was really, really expensive. At a proposal they actually murdered on Putin's birthday. It was in fact a birthday present to the president. Now I absolutely understand that in in, in the past, and not just in the past, in certain parts of the world, that the, the use of violence against uh, citizens as subjects was was a fairly normal thing. But I really I'd argue even then that, that when it became this at this level and this arbitrariness, you are talking about people who had departed from the normal act. I mean, even even in medieval England and medieval France, there still were laws, there were still rules, and they there were if, if nothing else, there were social conventions that normal kings, emperors, dukes, and marquises did adhere to. I don't that that this there do not seem to be very many rules left. At least none that not many that I can. Uh, understand but then again i am not within that system
0: and you are a notable cynic
1: Michael. I, am i am i a, am I a barking dog maybe i am sometimes michael people just fall out of windows sometimes people just fall out of windows sometimes a cigar is just a cigar very often they leave suicide notes as well yeah. so you yeah. know no need to look into that anymore. Also, I mean, you're the, we were talking before. I mean, the point that several people were making about finding the body, or if it was the, the body had been identified, and all, really, that's your thing. That it's all going to be based on. Oh well, they found a body; it's been identified, so we know for certain. Like in Russia, they wouldn't be capable of getting a body from somewhere that the guy who's involved in doing the autopsy and the people that are involved in identifying him couldn't be told this is Prokhorov. And that when they sent the, they sent the say, a tissue sample away to the labs to be identified for DNA, that they're not going to come back with the the answer that, this, that Mr. Putin et Al are desirous of. I don't think the presence of one body or a hundred bodies uh, would make any any bit of difference if that indeed was the case that the, the body was not in fact Actually, uh,
0: looking at this list of suspicious deaths, shocking amount of people found dead with their wife and children. Also, these people fall down a lot—not just off balconies, occasionally off boats. Boats, Yes, and drown. In at least, in least one instance, fell down a flight of
1: stairs. Now, if I'm getting, if i moving to Russia, I'm definitely getting one of those. I'm getting a bungalow dacha.
0: Dmitry Pavotchka burned alive after falling asleep with a lit cigarette. Oh God,
1: horrible!
0: That's either a terrible accident or a really bad way to murder someone.
1: And again, isn't that the point? That I, 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 in a number of these cases, many of these cases, that the the method of the murder is in fact part of is is, is a large part of it. It's, you know, like in the in in those in those films, there are certain when the mafia was uh, or organized crime were going was going to kill you, uh, if they would send a message by the method of your or your execution, like they shoot your eyes out, or they shoot you in the mouth and cut your tongue out, or you be you be you be found wrapped up with a, some item or a card or a note or something that would symbolic of something that the reason why you've done these these are done to make statements. This is in fact, Gary. This is a this is a you could argue a very uh, a new not a new level, but maybe a return to an old level of understanding the nature of deterrence within a within a criminal justice system. And they just told you know go out, be creative, have fun with it.
0: Do you know, uh, speaking of of statement executions, Michael, do you know what one of the punishments that could be dealt out to you during the reign of Darius,
1: King Darius, in the Persian Empire was? Well, you're asking a big question there. Eastern potentates tended to to be pretty creative with these things, and not just then. Go on. So there was a, a, I believe it was either a
0: judge or a regional official, a magistrate. Uh, who accepted a bribe. So, and Darius was very big, as you know, Michael, on a lack of corruption in the bureaucracy and impartiality. Was well, this the man that was hungry for gold? No, no, not that chap. What happened was he first appointed this chap's son to his position, so he was he was forced to resign. And then uh Darius had him uh, flayed, and then <laughs> decided that all new Judgments in this region should be given while sitting on a particular throne, which was made out of this chap's skin. So basically, his son had to sit in a chair made of his father as a reminder that it
1: would be very unwise to accept a bribe. Romans had a lot of very specific things. One of them, I can't remember, was it for forgery or perjury, where you were tied up in a sack with snakes and then thrown into the sea? There was another one where, this wasn't Roman, I don't think, somebody was found to be very hungry for gold and they thought it would be a, a, a rattling good joke to get kind of a, you know, a funnel and put the funnel into his mouth and down his throat and then get molten gold and pour it into him.
0: Weirdly enough, Persians killed a shocking amount of people by pouring molten gold onto them. Really? Um, Valerian, the um, the Roman emperor, there's a story, I'm not sure if this is true, that he was captured by the Persians and he was kept as a personal slave of, um, I actually can't recall which Persian emperor it was, but eventually he got tired of him anyway and um, killed him with molten gold and then um, taxidermied him oh. um, and stuffed his body with straw and gold
1: and then put it on display. Oh, that was, he was captured at the Battle of, God, I used to know the name of that battle. That was the only... That, that an emperor was was caught was captured in battle. It was against the Parthians, wasn't it? The Parthian Empire. The battle. Oh my goodness! I uh, think the, we 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 maybe we should move on from the the ingenious in the, the ingenious various ways that people have uh, used to kill other people at the time. Actually, on a, just as
0: a, as a, an aside that might assume the listeners. I did the grip live stream last week. And one of the responses we got was someone saying, "I think they're like that was very nice, but uh, you'll never get anywhere with this sort of lowbrow and offensive joking about things like waterboarding." And I had made a comment about having John McGurk waterboarded, and I was asked if I want to respond to this, and I said, "Well, no, because I don't think it's going to make him feel any better if I point out I wasn't joking." (laughs) Okay,
1: probably not. Your your instincts were probably good on that one.
0: But keeping on the the. the theme, Michael, of crime and punishment. Interesting figures from the doll this week uh, in relation to a PQ on recidivism. Yes. So Noel Grealish had asked uh, for the recidivism rate uh, within three years, which is uh, basically the likelihood that a person will be arrested again for a crime within that period. Not that they commit a crime, that they'd be arrested for a crime. Very important distinction. And it shows that Ireland has a three-year recidivism rate of about 61%, which is to say for every 10 people who go into prison, six of them will be arrested for another crime within three years. And we have a 47% one-year recidivism rate, which again is to say nearly half of the people (laughs) released from prison will within one year be arrested for another crime. And considering that the completion rates for a lot of crimes in Ireland are not very good. One would expect that most of these people commit multiple crimes before being picked up, which is a staggering dedication to criminality, Michael.
1: Also, cynical persons might observe also that it's not, at times, it feels like it's not that easy for people to get into prison in the first place. No, I think that that is something we're mentioning, what I would like and
0: isn't in these stats is, you know, a follow on Michael. So it's great to know the recidivism rate is 40%. But if that were the case, and you would just cycle people through, eventually, you'd, you'd cut that rate down, um, just because there'd be less and less people in prisons. So what I'd be quite interested to see is, you know, if you recommit a crime and get arrested once, how likely are you to do so again? Like, are we looking at a relatively small cohort of people here effectively working, a, you know, a Pareto principle where 20 percent of the country or probably substantially lower are most of the uh, people committing crimes and most of the people in prison?
1: Well, I think we know that that is true. I mean, what would be interesting to know is to know how true that is. Well, Patrick West did a piece on recidivism. So, excuse me. Uh, applying kind of a Pareto principle to to crime, I think you were looking at figures in Ireland, and it was kind of staggering how much serious crime was committed by how few people. The only thing would be interesting to see also with the recidivism rates that if you saw a decline, if there was a if there was a if you could graph a decline with age, if if there was an association, and also with sex. I mean, I am I imagine from most of the we have in the rest that mo- most crimes. Very much the large majority of crimes are committed by men, and uh, certainly serious crimes, and they tend to be committed by young men. So we're interested to see how, to what extent you could graph the fall off in recidivism with uh, uh, with increasing age.
0: It all, it, one of the things that came to my mind is when you read uh, criminology works, one of the most commonly said things is that things like three strike. Uh, policies where if you commit three crimes of a certain severity, you just automatically get a minimum sentence. It is exceptionally commonly argued that they don't work. The problem I found with the with the literature is that when you read it, a lot of it is quite, quite emotional nearly. It comes across that these are people who have a moral issue with this more than they have a policy issue with this. And the problem there is it's very easy to find stats to support whatever your moral issue is. As we were saying, Michael, one of the most commonly found results in criminology is that a small percentage of the population commit the majority of crimes. And you can see here a massive recidivism rate. So I don't know how you square either the findings as to who commits crime, most crimes, or these recidivism rates with an argument that longer sentences would not reduce crime for the very simple reason that if 50% of people who leave prison are getting arrested again within a year and let's say, Michael, let's, this is just an ad hoc number. Let's say you're arrested, but maybe you committed you know, four crimes and it's the last one that you get caught on. Just keeping you in prison a
1: year longer would stop those four crimes. Now, those numbers on the face of it, Gary, not also make you wonder about to what extent the preso-principle is actually operative, because if you're seeing refis- recidivism rates that, that are that high, that suggests that actually the the criminal population is fairly widespread within the within the prison population that it isn't in fact that if, if the paraphernalia would reoperate, you you'd you expect that most people would leave prison and wouldn't commit crime again but that, that there would be the small hardcore of people who are creating, committing most of the crimes because it's the number of crimes associated with the individuals that gives this sense, but that the large the large majority of people would commit one or two crimes, but then would stop committing crimes.
0: I would, I what I would say is actually happening there is that it probably is something similar to the Pareto principle. For those who don't know, um, just to explain this, the Pareto principle is the idea that... In most, in
1: if, if you look at it from a kind of an economics point of view, that in most situations, 80 percent of the productivity comes from 20 percent of the people involved in the activity, so that you have a small number of people who are very very highly productive, and most people are a lot less productive. So in the set of 100 criminals, 20 criminals will be doing the large amount of the crime, and 80 percent of the criminals will be only be doing a little amount. and in, in your office, 80 percent of the work will be done by 20 percent of the people. And, it, and the rest of the people will not have to be doing that much work. 20% of the of inventions will, or 80% of the inventions will come from 20% of people and so on. So it the actual number of people that are highly productive in any sector will actually be a small proportion of people involved in the sector.
0: Yeah, so what I think might be happening is that that is true on a population level. And then when you actually look at the recidivism rates that... Most of the people in prison, Michael, and with a recidivism or three year recidivism rate of sixty one percent in two thousand and seventeen, which is the last year we have data for are this would appear to be true I'd say most of the people in prison are habitual criminals
1: well that could be that's simply the case, and it may be simply the case that if you're only an occasional criminal that you simply you're very very unlikely to fall into the category of being in prison, and therefore the the kinds of people that end up in prison the kinds of people who commit lots of crimes and and knock up lots of convictions. I think you were saying about the, mar- the moral element that people have, of the objection that people have to the three strikes and you're out kind of thing is that they tend to be perceived as in they can function as rather blunt instruments. So for example, you had states in the United States say, state where if you, had, if you committed three felonies, uh, then you, that was three strikes and you're out. But there's a huge differentiation within the category felony so a murder is a felony but also stealing you know in the in the best traditions of the the dickens novel stealing a loaf of bread could well be also a felony so your third you might do two serious crimes and then on one particular day you go into your local supermarket and you steal a loaf of bread and you're you're caught and you're convicted and that's a felony and for stealing the loaf of bread you end up getting 25 years in prison and the sense was that this was wildly disproportionate and productive of outcomes which were basically unjust so the that that moral sense that the, this is too too blunt a tool to use against people that can end up having catastrophic consequences for rather minor actions
0: yeah I mean, on on the research on this i would absolutely if someone wants to make the argument that at longer sentences are not the most effective way of dealing with this. I think that's a fair argument, that three-strike rules are not the most effective way of dealing with this. Again, perfectly reasonable argument to make, but I have never been able to square the argument that they do not work at all. When we know a small percentage of population commits most crimes, these people are highly likely to re-offend, and also that one of the greatest predictors of crime when you've got a a group together is is age. People above a certain age tend to commit less crime. People age out of a lot of crimes, particularly uh, crimes of a, a certain type. So I've never, I've never quite been able to square it, but it does seem like an incredibly uh, repeated statistic. And I would point out here, in relation to to uh, recidivism, we've been talking about. Well, you know, only a certain amount of crimes are actually uh, reported to the police. Only a certain amount are. Uh, solved so again this is not people committing one crime when they get out this is people committing however many crimes are required for it to be reported and solved and for them to be charged and depending on the types of crimes you are doing the completion rates there the amount of cases that the guards actually solve can be quite low
1: well we had that discussion didn't we some uh, some time ago about the completion rates uh here which were not impressive, and particularly when you understood what actually completion meant. Completion did not did not mean arrest, trial, conviction, imprisonment. Something very different to that. So, yeah, the, the completion rates were not uh, reassuring.
0: So, it would appear here we have uh, a wonderful example of a small population of habitual criminals who, Michael, perhaps something should be done about. <laughs>
1: this is not a new conversation been having we've been having in, in, in the Western world for, oh, God, 150 years or more, probably. But uh, anyway, the Leaving Cert, Gary, has come out, the results. And everybody's shocked and horrified that there is something called great inflation. And I know that for people like me who did the Leaving Cert a very, very long time ago, and I got what was considered to be a kind of a decent Leaving Cert. It was very, very far from a stellar one, but a decent enough one. I did, I got what I needed. What I needed wasn't much. But now they gave. They go gaily scattering. It's not even A's. It, I, they keep changing the names of things, Gary. It's very, very hard for old people like me. You don't have A's anymore. You have H's and H1s and H2s. And you used to have H3, but you don't have H3s anymore. You ha- like you used to have A1, A2, A3, but A's are gone. Now we've H's. And half the country, seems to me, isn't doing Irish anymore. And when I say to people, "But well, did you matriculate?" People don't matriculate anymore. There are thousands of courses out there, but everybody's very agitated about grade inflation. Are you worried about grade inflation, Gary? I Willie, really, Jimmy, that having thought about this a little bit over the last little while, okay, I put this. I start off with it with a story. Many some some years ago, I went back to do a master's, and when I was in college, you had to get uh, to do a master's, you had to get uh, a 2-1, I think it was, to get a grant. And you could do one with a 2-2, but you wouldn't get a grant. But you wouldn't necessarily be accepted in to do a master's, because there were far fewer courses available, and there were far fewer, the, the numbers of students were much lower, etc. But so, I went back to a master's, I said to the head of the department, rather, by the way, you know, I, I only have a 2-2, and she said to me, well, when did you do your degree? And I said, oh, back in whenever. And she said, oh, okay. Well, that counts as a first now. So I suppose my first point is that great inflation, if it's happening, isn't just happening in uh, the schools. It's happening across the board. And there are economic reasons. As far as, I mean, one I'm told, I this may be true, this may not be true. I was told by somebody in the, in, in the business that one of the reasons is, you know, they have these university uh rankings now like they have school rankings which are based simply on the number of people you can get from your school into a university or into a, a degree course university rankings where they rank the, various, and the and one of the factors that they use is the number of people the number of graduating students who achieve first class honors degrees so you are if you care about rankings and they do because Rankings are one of the things that people use when they try to decide which university to go to or which college to go to. So there is actually a, a, an active economic incentive in having a higher proportion of your students going out with higher class degrees than lower class degrees because that's what you do up the rankings. But as regards the Leaving search, it seems to me that once upon a time, getting a Leaving Cert just by itself, was an achievement, and it would act, it grant you access to certain kinds of employment. But a lot of people didn't have leaving certs. People had inter-certs or junior cert, not what right now junior certs or what they call there was once a thing called the group cert. But the, the leaving cert was not that common, and it by itself was something. And people would ask, "What did you get in your leaving?" And what you got would be an issue regarding whether or not you, how you did in your interview. Whether or not you might get a particular job. But isn't it the case right now, Gary, that the leaving sort is fundamentally simply a sorting process for the CAO to distribute places at third level. And if that is the case, then it doesn't really matter, or that I can see I'm, I'm missing something here, that there is great inflation because. In the, in the global figures, the global figures will be sorted out and they will still have a hierarchy from top to bottom. And using that hierarchy, they will sort the places. So maybe once upon a time you could get into medicine if you had five Bs, right? Now you have to get six H1s to get into medicine and you have to do an interview. But the number of people achieving, the proportion of each individual set of results will still be basically the same year in, year out. There will be some variations between years. But basically, you'll have a similar kind of a, 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 a distribution pattern of results. And all it means is that the people at the top will be the people who got the highest results, and and, and so it will filter down. So if the leading sort is fundamentally just simply a sorting mechanism for the distribution of places in third level, really matter, does it? Or am I missing something here? Sorry.
0: Perhaps you can explain this to me, Michael, because I'm actually not terribly familiar with this story. I read that the minister had stepped in to ensure that the, the grade inflation continued after we brought in originally during COVID. But my question is this, Michael. Considering how the Irish education system works and how the points system works and that the points are readjusted based upon the results in the year... What's the actual point of this policy? Because if you inflate everyone's grades, then the points to get into each course will presumably move up by the amount you have inflated it, unless you're already at the top, in which case it just means more people can get into the very top-ranking um, courses. But it seems it doesn't seem to serve any actual purpose. Uh,
1: I, think, I, think, I think your point is, is, is correct. In this okay, if we put it this way. If one year for whatever reason the word goes out to the correctors across all the subjects, this year we're going to be really, really hard, and the number of A's declines, the number of B's declines, the number of C's declines, right? So the average points of the average number the number of people that say get six hundred points declines from five percent to three percent and 5 to 80 goes down to whatever. What will happen is that a course which the previous year required 600 points to get into now will require 580 points or 560 points. The the number of points required, this is as I understand it anyway, the number of, each course will have what they call the numero clauses, a closed number. In universities on the continent they have open numbers and basically as long as you've passed your state exam at some level, you can walk in and you can decide, I'm going to do medicine or I'm going to do engineering. And they use the university exams as the sorting mechanism. And even if you didn't get a great leaving search, we'd say their equivalent of a great leaving search, if you can consistently pass the university exams and then pass the the professional exams at the end of it, they'd say, okay, you can be a doctor. You've passed the requisite exams, uh, away you go. Here, we don't we, we, we start the screening process, shall we say, earlier, because we have, we have a closed number of places that are available. But all of those places will be filled. So if the, number, the, the average number of points available generated by leaving search declines, well, then the, the, the number of points required for a particular course in Trinity to do medicine or in UCD to do physiotherapy or whatever will also come down. I mean, the numbers will also come down if there is a decline in the request for that particular course. Because that also happens, Gary, remember that at different times, different courses will become more fashionable. They will be perceived as being more employment friendly, um, more remunerative, and then they will go out of fashion, and other courses will become more desirable. And because more people are applying for them, which then the, n- the number of points required will increase for those persons so why are they doing i i it's i think when with covid it was kind of done as a as a a public reassurance mechanism because we kept on being told about how stressed and how worried students were because they were being uh they, were, they weren't getting the normal kind of schooling they were doing stuff online and therefore we're going to have to create a less demanding exam because of the experience they'd had during COVID. Um, and that wasn't just at a, a, a correction level, but also the exams were actually made The choices were expanded and the number of things you had to do that were mandatory was reduced and so on. But it was basically, I think, a, kind of a, a reassurance mechanism. Listen, if we had somebody from the department here or somebody from the teachers' used, they might tell us that there was actually a, some kind of a specific practical purpose for this. but. I, it seems to me that really it was it was a form of kind of reassurance. Why we kept it going, I'm not a hundred percent clear on. Uh, the reporting is that inflation, the grades are up by an average of around eight percent this year, and that was as a direct as a directive from the minister. I don't know. On a slightly tangential subject, it does seem to me that one of the we the, we constantly talk about the leaving sort, and I think there are aspects of the leaving sort that are actually positive. I mean, the fact that it is absolutely blind; there is, as a mechanism, it is a completely blind sorting mechanism, is a very positive thing. The fact that teachers are not involved and teachers don't want to be involved, even though there's strong pressure from the from the department and from the politicians, that more of the marking actually be done within the school rather than at the exam because they don't like the. They, they think the exam pressure. I think constantly, constantly telling teenagers that they're doing something which is horrible and stressful and rotten and bad for them and bad for their mental health which is what we do constantly is not actually a very good way of dealing with this I think it's, I have
0: very little truck with a lot of the stuff about the Leaving Cert because I think far from only parts of it being positive, I think quite a lot of it is actually positive. And I say that as someone who didn't do terribly well in the Leaving Cert because I had no, absolutely no interest in it, but a lot of interest in drinking. But it, you're right, it is a it is a blind test and we know from research in this, particularly in America, that one of the greatest things for social mobility of uh, the per is blind testing. Blind testing is immensely helpful uh, for that because legitimately talented people come out on top. And for all the talk of, oh, well, the rich can get, uh, they can get tutors. They can do all of these things. They do have an effect, but not as much as
1: people think. There's an argument also, Gary, it's, to say that if we actually move stuff far more into school experience stuff, and uh, that you actually can, you you potentially may amplify the advantage to the children of privileged, the privileged classes over those who are more financially strained, and that you actually end up with a perverse result. One of the things that you, sorry, I just want to say, that if you, if you remember the PISA results that One of the I think the only occasion that I can remember coming across where Ireland actually came number one was joint first with Finland back in the early 2000s. And that was on the access that students, children had to a high quality of education, irrespective of where they lived. So it didn't matter if you lived in a poor or deprived part of the city or if you lived in a rural area. That you act that there was a that you could still access easily access high quality education, and that was that was a really important and positive thing. Now that has declined. Now it may I, I, there's a correlation; it may not indeed be a causation. But I think it's interesting at least that that has happened at the same time as we've seen a decline in the voluntary school sector, and I think that maybe something to that might be worth. Somebody to go out and have a look at that, and the, the voluntary school sector is definitely not in good favour with those people who run Irish education policy, and has not been for quite some time. Voluntary sector is mostly those schools that would have once upon a time been run by priests, nuns, and brothers, and tended to be more academic in their approach. But it is, as you say, it, it is the it is a bl- the blind test is one of the best in one of the best and most successful ways that people can get out of uh, where they are and advance economically, socially, mobility, whatever you want. They
0: are one of the strongest tools for social mobility that has ever been seen. It's why American universities are currently getting rid of them to the largest extent they can, because it turns out that if you allow the truly talented people to come forward, then, well, that doesn't—that uh, has some, should we say, consequences for
1: the makeup of your student body. It just, just wanted—I wanted to mention one thing very, very quickly was that while there have been pro- issues regarding uh, education in areas of deprivation, the Daesh, the there have been significant improvements uh, through the through in the Desh school system, which has been quite successful. A number of the programs they've used there. say with literacy numeracy, reading levels and the scores in PISA have been good and you have to say the scores that we get are pretty good and they're more than pretty good we get pretty damn good results across the board uh from our PISA in our PISA rankings particularly when you consider uh that outside of Europe I would take some of those PISA results with a large grain of salt
0: next you'll be telling me that Cuban hospitals are not the uh the apex of public health
1: care. Well, you remember what happened when they all sent when they sent all those Bra- those Cuban doctors to Brazil, don't you? Yeah, the Brazilians sent them back and said, "No, no, no, sorry, we're badly off doctors, but we don't need these doctors."
0: All right, we will leave it there. We will be back next week. I believe the doll is sitting again within a small number of weeks, so we will leave this silly season behind, Michael. Oh, no, we
1: won't. We'd be in the sillier season, far sillier when the doll is sitting. But anyway, we should be back in social day. All the best.